0: Heavenly Father, we know that um, You want to instruct us. And so this morning, Lord, we pray that we would open up our hearts. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't just read the words, but that we would receive both the content and the intent. Lord, we pray that You would cause us to examine ourselves. Lord, we pray that like James, we wouldn't be so foolish as to look into the mirror of the Word of God and walk away and forget what it's showing us. And so, Lord, I pray that You would prepare hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another. As I have loved you, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain. And whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you these things. I command you that you love one another. This morning, I'm entitling this message, The Supreme Command. And if you look in your bulletins, you'll see the outline. It says our choicest command, love one another in verse 12, our supreme standard, the love of Jesus in verses 12 and 13, our greatest bond. We are friends of Jesus in verses 14 and 15, our unparalleled purpose. We are chosen and ordained to go in verse 16, our crowning command repeated Love one another, verse 17. And you can count the superlatives in that outline. A superlative is the greatest, if you will. And we live in a world of superlatives. We've almost become numb to them. We have paramount pictures. We have preeminent professors. We have superior students. We use words like ascendant, transcendent, foremost, best, choice, Primary, leading, chief, main, dominant, all-powerful, foremost, soaring, finest, to describe everything from our sports teams to the salsa that we eat with our chips. I mean, after all, who wants to eat a bag of chips that says second best? Who goes for the bag marked stale? But with so many firsts and with so many bests, You can imagine that there are divisions and separations and disconnections. Division in the body of Christ is a problem. It's a huge problem. As a matter of fact, few things will drain a local church and destroy that church like divisions. Fellowship is compromised. Our witnesses compromise. And sometimes there's a person who comes into our midst and they're looking for Jesus and they're looking for hope and they're looking for life. And then they look in our direction and they see problems, doubts, divisions, a lack of love and they wonder whether or not the Christian message is true. As a matter of fact, the church at Corinth quickly collapsed under the celebrity of apostles. You'll remember in 1 Corinthians, they started talking about, well, I'm of Paul because Paul is the best. Who, who, rot. Others would say, I'm of Cephas. Peter. No, Peter's the best. No, I'm of Apollos because he's on more radio stations in the Mediterranean than any other person. Well, Paul addresses those issues. The problem is, if we fail to unite, we can never present a united front against the enemy. Jesus makes it clear that the way that you relate both to God and the way you relate to Jesus and the way you relate to each other matters to the Lord. Some of you may think, you know, the only thing I really care about is what Jesus cares about. Well, that's not a bad place to begin. Because the truth is, if you care about the things that Jesus cares about, then you must, of necessity, care about each other. If the Bible is any indication how Jesus feels about division and self-centered behavior, then we must be prepared to abandon it. Most of you would never steal the purse or the wallet of the person sitting next to you. You'd never go to their home and pull up their plants or beat their children or tease their dog. But you're willing to forsake fellowship with each other. You're willing to compromise your witness Or worse, you're willing to destroy a human soul that's looking for God. How? How how would I do that? How, How in the world could I ever be guilty of such a thing? By refusing to love each other. If ever there was a place to use superlatives, it's now. When we look at Jesus' choicest commands, Look again in verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another. As I have loved you. So Jesus, of course, talks about the will of Jesus is mutual love measured by sacrifice. Now, remember what we've already seen thus far. John has revealed to us the way into Jesus' heart in verses 9 and 10. The word from Jesus' heart in verse 11. And now we come to the will of Jesus' heart in verse 12. And that will constitutes the supreme command, what we as Christians might call the prime directive. If we miss everything else, this is the one we need to get. And I know as you read that sentence, some of you might be thinking, this is my commandment that you love one another. And you might be thinking, how can you legislate love? How can you command love? Can even Jesus command love? Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, you must keep in mind that Christian love is not basically a feeling. It's an act of the will. The proof of our life is not our feelings, but in our actions, even to the extent of laying down our lives for Christ and for one another. That's what it says in 1 John 3, verse 16, by the way. Jesus laid down His life for both His friends and his enemies in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. While emotions are certainly involved, real Christian love is an act of the will. And then Warren Wiersbe writes, and I quote, it means treating others the way God treats us. Isn't that a surprising definition? Love is the way God treats us. And so if you need a measure, if you need a standard, if you need a definition, then whatever it means to love, it means the way that God treats us becomes the mechanism and the method whereby we love each other. And as you begin to do a laundry list and you begin in your mind to begin to ask and answer the question, how does God treat me? It becomes the way that you treat each other. That's the standard that you use. That's the method that you use. In Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Paul will write, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. So, if we just begin there, if we begin with the message, How are we to treat each other? Well, we're to treat each other the way that God treated us. Now again, remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In the Living Bible, it puts it very, very clearly. The Apostle Paul wrote, love is very patient and kind. Love is never jealous or envious. Never boastful or proud. Never haughty. Or selfish or rude, love does not demand its own way. It is not irritable or touchy. It doesn't hold grudges and will hardly even notice when others do it wrong or does it wrong. It is never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever truth wins out. And now we begin to expand the whole issue. And then we look at the supreme standard, the love of Jesus. He ends at the end of verse 12, love one another as I have loved you. And then in verse 13, Jesus goes on and He says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus has been speaking about what it means to abide in His love. Jesus has been speaking about what it means to abound in His love. And now He begins to talk about the demonstration of that love. The whole chapter has been filled with abiding and abounding. And now it's demonstration. How is the love demonstrated? Well, again, the Lord may have been speaking about His own upcoming sacrifice. As a matter of fact, when He is saying these words, remember I've already reminded you, He's left the upper room. They're walking past the temple. They're going into the Kidron Valley. They're headed for the Mount of Olives. Jesus will be dead the next day. Jesus will be arrested in the middle of the night. He will be tortured throughout the night. He will be incarcerated. He will be beaten. And by nine o'clock in the morning, he will find himself on a Roman cross. That's the day that he has to look forward to. He's going to lay down his own life. The Lord may be speaking about the upcoming sacrifice, but clearly the emphasis is on sacrifice. And if there is a word associated with sacrifice, you know what that word is? It's voluntary. In order for a sacrifice to be a sacrifice, it has to be entered into willingly, personally, and voluntarily. You see, a love that isn't love, that isn't personal, that isn't voluntary, ceases to be love. It becomes compulsion. And so sacrifice is voluntary. It is a voluntary surrender for the good of the person who is loved. I want to repeat that. It is a voluntary surrender for the purpose of doing what is in the best interest of the person who is loved. And so the greatest love anyone can show for a friend is to voluntarily die for that friend. The demonstration of love leads to the declaration of friendship. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. Albert Camus, the famous... French existentialist said it is normal to give away a little of one's life in order not. He said, quote, it is normal to give away a little of one's life. In order not to have to give all of it. That's not a biblical concept. It is normal to give all of your life. Or excuse me, it's not normal to give all of your life so that someone else can live. Someone once said, it's not what we stand for, but what we fall for that becomes the true test of strength. Perhaps we might say, it's not what we live for, but what we are willing to die for that becomes the true measure of love. What are you willing to live for? What are you willing to die for? The prophet in describing the Messiah, Isaiah, said he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. Oddly enough, nothing is lost by living a life of sacrifice. But everything is lost when we fail to obey God's call. And now Jesus introduced this whole concept of friendship, our greatest bond, if our supreme standard is the sacrifice of Jesus, then our greatest bond is friendship. And listen carefully. Jesus says, we are friends of Jesus. And then Jesus says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Question. Who can be the friend of Jesus? What do you suppose the answer is? Anyone is the answer. Anyone, anyone can become the friend of Jesus. Anyone who agrees to his conditions. All that is necessary is that you love him and then a willingness to do what he says. And I want you to pay close attention to that word friends. Friend is is a word that meant in this particular instance it means a friend at court Um, this is a description that meant the inner circle or privy to intimate details as a matter of fact the Greek word that's used is translated best man in John chapter 3 verse 29 in other words it isn't just like a friend sort of like a friend on Facebook you know for those of you who are familiar with facebook it 's an electronic phenomenon of social networking in order to sign up for Facebook you make your little you know your little Facebook location and in order to become someone 's friend on Facebook, they have to invite you now the way for the way Facebook works is people can give you suggestions you know I want to suggest that uh, Katie Couric, uh, become your friend. Well, I don't know Katie Couric and I don't don't want to be her friend. So I hit ignore. So how do you sign up to be on Jesus' Facebook? He extends the invitation of friendship to anyone who loves Him and is willing to obey Him. As a matter of fact, That's what part of the intimacy issue was the friend of the king would be close to the king and have access to the king's secrets, but they would also be subject to the king and they would have to obey the king in the ancient world. You had this inner circle that was called the friends of the king. And the friends of the king would, could go into the king's bedchamber. They would be the people that you would meet the first thing in the morning. They would brief the king. And remember, it was a great privilege. It was an awesome privilege to be able to visit with the king. But most people in a kingdom would never have access to the king. As a matter of fact, in verse 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I've heard from my Father I have made known to you. Now, the reason why this becomes important, the term servant can also be translated slave. It also can mean a slave by choice. Listen carefully. The slave could never be a partner in the ancient world a slave attended you a slave took care of you in the ancient world a slave was called a living tool the master didn't care what the slave thought The master didn't care about the opinion of the slave. The slave simply did what the master required. And you never had to give a slave a reason or an explanation. Now Jesus says, look, you are not slaves. You are partners. Do you understand what an amazing concept that is? That's what Jesus is extending. Friendship. In a very real sense, this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is willing to share His mind and share His heart and share His plans. We're given a choice to enter into that partnership with Christ in leading the world in the direction of God's plan and God's purpose. The illustration that I think about is, you'll remember in the Old Testament, when God calls Abraham, and in a particular moment in time, God calls Abraham his friend. As a matter of fact, in Second Chronicles 20, verse 7, Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8, and James chapter 2, verse 23, in all of those places, you see the remarkable statement, Abraham is called God's friend. In Genesis chapter 18, we read the story of our Lord and two angels who show up in the shadow of Abraham's tent. And they're coming basically in the heat of the day to investigate the sin of Sodom. And even though it is noon, and even though it's hot outside, and even though Abraham is well over a hundred years old, he greets the visitors. He sees to their comfort. He feeds them a fine meal. And over the course of the next 15 verses in Genesis chapter 18, we see Abraham making himself a servant. He, and throughout the text, if you read it, if you're impressed with the fact that it says he runs here. He runs there. He runs. He hastens. He encourages. Trust me, when you're over 100 years old, you're not like on the go. But he's on the go. Abraham doesn't sit with his guests. He serves them. And like a true servant, he attends them. He makes himself available to them. And then in the last half of the chapter, the atmosphere dramatically changes. And Abraham is communing with the Lord. Abraham is still the Lord's servant, but he's being treated like a friend. And then the Lord says this remarkable thing shall I hide from Abraham that which I'm about to do? And the Lord says, no. As a friend of God, Abraham shares God's secrets. And in a single sentence, Jesus destroys All of the Gnostics, all of the mystics, all of the cultic pretenders, all of the Da Vinci Code wannabes, all of the History Channel innuendos. He says, for all things that I heard from my father, I've made known to you. Do you understand what that means? It means there's no secret information left to be divulged. There's no secret manuscript lying in a pit or a cavern somewhere or in a cave. There's no other information that's waiting out there that's going to upset and overturn everything that you've learned as a Christian. Sorry, Jehovah's Witnesses. Sorry, Mormons. There isn't a third covenant There isn't the Bible, but what the Bible left out. Because Jesus says, guess what? As my friends, I haven't left anything out. Everything that my Father has told me, I have told you. What do you need to know? It's everything that Jesus has spoken of i come from the Father. I've come as a sacrifice. I've come so that you could live. You remember the Bible tells the story of David. There was a moment in his life when he was running as a fugitive from Saul. And you'll remember that David was near his hometown of Bethlehem, and he longed for a drink of water from the well by the gate. I think about that every time I'm down the 5 Freeway in Southern California, and I longed for an In-N-Out burger with a, with a, a vanilla shake and some fries. I want to go to the gate and I want to experience what I remember, my comfort food. And for David, it was water by the well. And three of his mighty men were close enough to hear David sigh. Oh, man, what I wouldn't give for a sweet tea from Chick-fil-A. It's closed, so don't even bother to try and get it for me. But at great risk to themselves. They went past the enemies to the well. They risked their lives to bring a cup of water to the king. And you know what he did? He was so overcome by their act of friendship and loyalty that he couldn't bring himself to drink it. And he poured it on to the ground as a drink offering to the Lord. That's what it means to be the friend of the King. To be the friend of the King means you hear the sigh of God in the silent recesses. When you're the friend of the King, you are waiting on the King and ministering to the King and attending to the King and willing to listen to what the King has to say so that you can respond to the King. And it's in that context that we read verse 16. 16, You didn't choose Me, but I chose You and appointed You that You should go and bear fruit and that Your fruit should remain and that whatever You ask the Father in My name, He may give You. Listen carefully. Our privileged position in Jesus is rooted and grounded in love. It's rooted and grounded in grace. Jesus reminds them, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I want you to think for just a moment. In what way did Jesus choose His disciples? For those of you who have been able to follow along in John's Gospel, particularly in in, in chapter 15, you'll remember we were chosen to bear fruit. We were chosen to abide. We were chosen to abound. We were chosen for joy. We've been chosen for love. We've been chosen to be friends. We've been chosen to be... partners. We've chosen to be ambassadors. We were chosen to be. I know it seems odd to use this word in the context of this particular passage. We're chosen to be advertisements. What do you mean? When you see an advertisement or you hear an advertisement, what is an advertisement? It's a plea for a product. An advertisement is a plea for a product. And now you become God's plea in Christ. It's a plea for a product. And what is the product? Forgiveness, hope, love, joy, peace. If you are God's plea for a product, what kind of a product are you? When people look at you, do they go, man, I want to be a Christian also. I want a forgiveness. I I want that kind of joy and I want that kind of hope and I want that kind of forgiveness. And this is interesting on so many different levels. If we're chosen for joy and we're chosen for love and we're chosen to be friends and we're chosen to be partners and we're chosen to be ambassadors and we're chosen to be examples. Jesus now has you as his friends on Facebook. He chose you out of this world, it says in John chapter 14, verse 9. He chose you out of this world, and then He chose you to go, and He chose you to bear fruit. Now, we tend to dwell on the concept of being chosen, and rightly so. When I hear my theologian friends talk about it, it says, clearly, this is a... A indication of the sovereignty of God and the mechanism of salvation. Yes, it is that! But it's way more than that. How can you make something so powerful and so beautiful and so relational, so dry? And look what it says. But Jesus says that you should go. I have appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. What? Yeah, chosen for love, chosen for joy, chosen for friendship, chosen to go, chosen to bear fruit. You know, in the ancient days, a knight in the service of the king would experience fellowship and feasting. Maybe some of you have seen movies about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And yes, they sit around the table and they have their flasks of grog and their cool swords. And all for one and one for all. Yeah, that's cool. That's camaraderie. But you know what every knight lived for? The knight longed for the time when the king would send him on a great and a noble mission. Jesus chose us to come to him. Jesus chose us to come to him and then Jesus chose us to be sent by him into the world. And again, we're reintroduced to the word fruit. It's the word that we've seen throughout the chapter. As branches, we share the life of Jesus. We share the life of Jesus and then we bear fruit for Jesus. As friends, we share his life and bear fruit. And here fruit, I think, means fruit that will stand the test of time. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone refuses to remain alone. You change. Your world changes. We point people to the life and the hope and the gospel of Jesus. And by the way, the way to spread Christianity is to encourage others to come to Christ. But don't be guilty of false advertising. Come to Christ and be like you for God. Act. That's the whole point of having a heart, and having a life, and having a joy, and having a presence that people look at. And they see that there's something substantially different about you. We show them the love of God. And we show them the love of God by the character of Christ in our own lives. We show them the love of God when we show love to each other. Doesn't this make sense to you? As branches were pruned by the Father as friends were instructed by the Son and His commandments. That's His Word that controls our lives. And by the way, in verse 16 where it says that whatever you ask, excuse me, in verse 16 where it says you didn't choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you. The word appointed can also be translated ordained. It refers to the act of someone being set aside for special service. People will often ask, you know, are you ordained? Well, yeah. I'm ordained by God for the special service of bearing fruit and loving each other. Now, here's the whole cool thing. That means all of you are ordained. Well, I don't have an ordination certificate in my office or at my desk. Yeah, you do. Just find a Bible that's been bruised and beaten and is no longer useful. Cut chapter 15 out and post it on your wall. You've been ordained by Jesus. You've been chosen by grace. You've been set aside by love. You've been set aside by the Lord Himself to go into the world and bear fruit. And it's the Lord Himself who sent us into the world. That's what it, it says in John chapter 17, verse 18. We are personal ambassadors sent by the king to tell others about his love and to tell others about the forgiveness of sin and to tell others about hope in Christ. We, when we witness, we plant seed. And when the seed germinates, fruit is produced. And now we begin to understand it. Chosen for joy. Chosen for love. Chosen to be advertisements. Advertisements. So how do you know that God is your Father and that you're true sons and daughters? The evidence that you are offspring. Discipleship, in verse 8. Friendship, in verse 15. And fruit! Discipleship, friendship, fruit. In Matthew 7.20 it says, Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Our friendship with the Lord Jesus... Involves love. But it also involves obedience. It also involves knowledge and understanding. Intimacy. Of the secrets of Jesus. Jesus lets us in on His plans. Think about that for just a moment. Jesus is our master. But He's also our friend. I told you. The time when I met with President Clinton and I said, Hey, Mr. President, we have some friends in common. And he goes, Oh, really, really? Who who are our friends? And I said, Franklin Graham and and Lee Strobel. He goes, Oh, they are my friends. They are my friends indeed. (laughs) The difference, of course, is when Jesus says, You are my friends. If you obey me. Now, is our friendship based on mutual obedience? Not really. But it is to the Lord. Dr. Oswald Sanders used to say, each of us is as close to God as we choose to be. I'm going to repeat that because it bears repeating. Each of us is as close to God as we choose to be. How close do you choose to be? How close in intimacy and friendship? How close do you choose to be? How close to His throne? How close to His word? How close to His plans? And then Jesus brings up the subject of prayer. Look at the end of verse 16. That whatever you ask the Father in My name, He may give you. The friends of the king communicate with the king. They share their burdens with the sovereign. They declare their needs to the sovereign. But their greatest need is to please the king. And so they ask for those things that are best for the kingdom and best for his rule. That's what a true friend does. And that's what a true servant does. They ask not what's in their best interest, but what is in the best interest of the mission of the kingdom. In the ancient days, like I said, it was a singular privilege to speak to the king or the queen. And yet the friends of Jesus can speak to him at any time. The throne of grace is available to those who have been made friends by grace. And the elements of a prayer clearly include faith. James chapter 5, verse 15, And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. We pray, and we pray in faith. Prayer is in the name of Jesus. Whatever you ask in my name. Jesus, it's a prayer that is consistent with the will and the character of Jesus. We can't pray for things which Jesus does not approve of. Imagine your children are visiting somewhere, like grandma and grandpa's house, and they ask grandma and grandpa for something that mom and dad would never approve of. Well, Mom said that we could ask you for this. Honey, I raised your mother. This is not something that your mother would ever allow you to have and would be embarrassed if you asked for it. That's the idea. We don't pray for things that Jesus doesn't approve of. We can't pray to possess someone or something which Jesus has already given to someone else. To pray with power, you have to have an invincible belief in the all-sufficient love of God. And effective prayer includes the statement, Your will be done. And it excludes selfishness. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 29, Jesus says, You shall ask what you will, and it shall be done for you. That is, you shall have what your faith expects. What does your faith expect? Does it expect that Jesus will make good on everything that He says? If we are abiding, we are abounding. And if we're not abounding, it's because we're not abiding. So let's try to understand what we've read. Jesus tells us that we are kings or friends of a king. It's a humbling experience. He chose us. We didn't choose Him. In order to be a friend, you have to accept the invitation. And we're to keep that in mind. And not to make so much of a theological point, but rather to keep us humble and to keep us from being presumptuous. We are to keep our eyes lifted and our ears open and our hearts ready. In the book of Job, it says, have you heard the secret of God? That's what it says in Job chapter 15, verse eight. And in Psalm twenty five fourteen it says this The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, he will show them his covenant. What is the secret of the Lord? He loves you. He's willing to forgive you. He's willing to enter into friendship with you. And look what it says. He repeats the commandment. These things I command you, that you love one another. He repeats the supreme command. He's already given this command in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Here in chapter 15, and then he repeats it. Love one another. Now, by the way, there are dozens of one another statements in the New Testament. Do not oppress one another. Be at peace with one another. Show hospitality to one another. We're members of one another. Honor one another. Don't judge one another. Receive one another. Do not excuse one another. In the good sense of don't let people get away with stuff that they shouldn't be getting away with. Do not fight with one another. Serve one another. Don't envy one another. Admonish one another. Wait for one another. Greet one another. Care for one another. Bear the burden of one another. Forgive one another. Be kind to one another. Submit to one another. Don't lie to each other. Provoke to good works one another. Comfort one another. Concern yourself in the affairs of one another. Again, in a good sense, not being a Budinsky but being concerned about their condition. Don't hate one another. Don't speak evil of one another. Pray for one another. Be like-minded for one another. Don't hold grudges against one another. Highly esteem each other. Don't be partial to one another. Have fellowship with one another. Edify one another. Teach one another. Do good to one another. Exhort one another. Minister spiritual gifts to one another. And if you can't remember all of those one another's, guess what? If you actually do love one another all of those other one-anothers will become fine. It's the, that's the one thing that you remember. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? If you remember this one thing, the laundry list of all of the other things will be easy to do. And by the way, the, the study of Jesus began in, in an upper room. It continued in a vineyard. But it concludes at the throne room of God. Our next study is going to take us to the Supreme Command headquarters, the battlefield. If we're not abiding as branches, if we're not obeying as friends, now this is the point. If we're not abiding as branches and if we're not obeying as friends, we will never ever be able to stand and face the opposition and hope to win. If we fail to love one another, if we fail to love the least and the last and the lost, then that means you're not marching as friends of the King. And we will never be able to unite and ignite from a heart of love Jesus said, Without me, you can do nothing, in verse 5. We're not simply handicapped. We're not simply ill equipped. We're not simply ill advised. We're traumatized and we're paralyzed. You know, the Chinese have a very funny saying they say, Do not use a hatchet to remove a fly from your friend's forehead. I think they stole it from the Sicilian people. Do not use a hatchet to remove a fly from your friend's forehead. You have to have the right tool for the right problem, don't you? But that's exactly what we do. We take a hatchet to each other. When we see those annoying circumstances that bug you, unite. Ignite your heart with love. We're going to need a united front, particularly when we meet again and we see the very next sentence If the world hates you, you know that it hated me first. There's enemies. And there's only one way that we're going to be able to face those enemies. United. We've got to remain in the, in the branch and we've got to obey the Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that You would allow our hearts into the throne room. Lord, clearly You've commanded that we love each other and moments of honesty, Lord, and self-examination, Lord, we know that we don't always do that. And so, Father, we pray that, Lord, You would forgive us, that we could repent of our sin, and that, Lord, we can obey in at least this one area. Lord, knowing that if we obey in this area, all the other areas will follow suit. Lord, we know that we live in perilous times. We know that there are great divisions. Lord, we pray that we would unite in the area that matters most. And that, Lord, we would be patient with one another. And kind to one another. And generous with one another. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand.